Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 45 through chapter 20, verse 18. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give, it, give him some fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I want to preach to you this morning from this text on the topic, Jesus cannot be stopped. Jesus cannot be stopped. Let's pray and ask God for help as we study this text. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak powerfully to us, that you would open our hearts to truth, that you would open our ears to hear this message today, I pray that you would help me as your servant speak your truth and not my ideas. I pray that you would help our people here in this room receive this with joy and with passion. 
and apply this text to their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in Idaho last summer, we drove right past a forest fire. Never seen a forest fire before, a real wildfire. And so we're routed around uh, on this back road, and we pull over, and we literally are watching a hill or a mountainside uh, come up in smoke. A tree that had been sitting there for 80 years, literally within 10 seconds, is burst into flames and gone. Uh, It made me respect wildfires in a way that I hadn't quite uh, understood before. One expert on wildfires explains the unstoppable nature of these phenomenons. They say a forest fire is a natural phenomenon that is similar to the ocean in that it is really big and much larger than us when it really gets going. A wildfire is similar to a combustion-powered hurricane. Fires put out tons of hot air at their center, which tries to violently rise. The rising air creates a vacuum at the core of fires, creating a fast-moving conveyor belt of cooler air flowing into the fire from all directions. A large fire can pull in so much air that at high speeds its, uh, its ability to do so is hindered only by the Earth's rotation. A large wildfire smoke column will begin to spin counterclockwise just as it happens to earthquakes. You can get, uh, uh, you, you get a very fast wind moving down toward the ground, and then when it hits the floor, it can send white hot air out from, uh, from the flame, incinerating the landscape before the actual flame has arrived. It can cause forests to spontaneously combust without coming into contact with a flame. A forest fire is virtually unstoppable. Well, this morning I want to talk not about forest fires, but I want to talk about another consuming fire. Not a wildfire, but a controlled, uh, calculated fire that is even more powerful than any forest fire our globe has ever seen. Truly unstoppable. Like I said, I want to talk to you this morning about the fact that Jesus cannot be stopped. Are you with me? The Pharisees have no clue who they're dealing with. They don't know that Jesus speaks with the authority of God. They don't know that Jesus speaks with the wisdom of God. They don't know that they could reject this stone, but that even in their rejection of this stone, he is going to be set up as the chief cornerstone. As we get into the text, it begins with a little narrative. When I went to New York City last December, 
my wife and I, uh, as soon as we got there, I believe we went straight to the, uh, the 9-11 memorial. You know, there might be a certain spot that you go to see first when you go to New York City. Well, when you go to Jerusalem, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, where's the first place he's going? He's going to the temple. So last week we saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem. His first stop, as everybody's, is the temple. Hang on one second, let me fix this. I don't want to be dealing with it the whole sermon. Thank you for your patience, everyone. Jesus stops in the temple, and, uh, and, and you could say the fire begins, all right? The hurricane begins. He comes into the temple like a whirlwind. In verse 45, it says, He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Now, we know from Matthew, who gives us a little more detail, that as Jesus enters into the temple, he starts doing what? Flipping tables. The Old Testament required that those who come to the temple would bring a certain kind of sacrifice. And also the Old Testament required a certain tax, temple tax. And so you've got people who are descending on Jerusalem from literally all over the known world at the time. And they're traveling in, and they don't, they're not bringing their sacrifices with them. They cannot bring their sacrifices with them. And so th there are tables set up at the temple to sell sacrifices to the worshipers who come. They're also coming with Greek and Roman coins. And so there are money changers to take the Greek and Roman coins and to give them the correct coin to use in the temple for the temple tax. These are the tables that Jesus is flipping in. When it says he drives out those who sold, these are the ones, uh, these are the sellers. The issue wasn't just simply the fact that they were making sacrifices available. It wasn't just simply the fact that they were exchanging money. The, the, the issue is known historically, and that is this. They were lining their pockets. They were charging enormous interest. They were taking advantage of the poor. They were taking advantage of the outsider who would come in, who wasn't a citizen of Jerusalem. They were taking advantage of those. They were making it harder for outsiders to come and worship God. We know, according to the Old Testament, that that was not the intent of God's house. Does anybody know that God's house is meant to be a place where every tribe and every tongue could come and know God? Yet humans have a convenient way of building dividing walls between tribes and tongues. God's house is to be the light of the world, but humans have a way of looking down on those who are not of them, who are different or foreign or strange. God's house was to be a place where the thirsty and the hungry could come without purse, without money bag. And they could eat and drink of the goodness of God without money or without cost. 
But humans have a fine way of perverting the worship of God for their purposes. So Jesus, as he's flipping tables, in verse 46, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 26, which is a kingly reference set in the context of all of the world being able to come and see the goodness of God and worship in spirit and in truth. My house is to be a house of prayer, he says. But they've perverted it. They've perverted the worship of God. They've turned it into a self-serving business. They are in the process of despising the poor and the outsider. Jesus goes on, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it what? Help me out here. You've made it a den of robbers. In verse 26, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Jeremiah, that's where he's getting that quote from, a den of robbers. Jeremiah, do you guys remember Jeremiah? We spent about a year and a half in it, all right? And we're still here. <laughs> we made it. I think for the rest of our church's existence, we're going to just celebrate the fact that we preached through the whole book of Jeremiah and made it out in one piece. They didn't, all right? Jeremiah ends in what? You remember? Exile. Babylon coming in. Prison taking him out. He's quoting Jeremiah. You see what he's doing? Jeremiah, in his day, looking at the perversion of the worship at the temple, Jeremiah, he literally says in the Hebrew, you've made this place a cave for thieves. Jesus is saying, not much has changed. Oh, Israel, you think you're doing well. You've got your list of rules. You've got your legalism. You've got your righteousness. You've got all of your self-works. You've got all of this good stuff. You've got your pride. You look a lot like Israel during Jeremiah's day. Jesus is placing himself as a prophet just before exile. This is why Jesus was weeping in our previous passage. This is also why Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross. You know, sometimes we're like, why do they kill him? Well, here's why. There, there, are, there were some real human reasons as to why they killed Jesus. He's being physical in the temple. He's flipping tables. They're perceiving this as a threat against the temple, against the worship of God. And he's saying, look, you guys, you're going to be destroyed. And so immediately, this is right after he comes into Jerusalem, immediately, what do they do? The chief priests, verse 47, scribes, principal men of the city, they are seeking to do what? Come on, help me out, church. They're seeking to destroy him. But they can't because in verse 49, he is, or uh, verse 48, he is enormously popular right now. Uh, the crowds are going to turn against him in a couple days. But in this moment, it says the people were hanging on every word. Now, this sets up 
the next passage. This is why I'm tying verses 45 to 48 of chapter 19 with verses 1 through 18 of chapter 20. Because I think this little narrative sets up the exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders and then a parable indicting their plotting against him. Are you with me? They're trying to kill him. This little narrative, it leads us to this question, and that is this. Can he be stopped? Can the religious leaders, the principal men of the city, the Pharisees, the chief priests, do they have it within their ability to plot in such a way that they can stop Jesus from doing this prophetic work of cleansing the temple? Can he be stopped? I think I was in college or so when the Passion of the Christ movie came out. Uh, and I remember after watching that, I was having a conversation with a woman, and she said, after watching The Passion of the Christ, she said, I don't know why they wanted to kill him. I just wanted to jump in there and do something about it and stand up for him. Too often we think that way about Jesus' crucifixion. You know, just the portrayal of his crucifixion alone, it doesn't actually show you his control, does it? It doesn't show you his power in the moment, does it? Like too often we think Jesus was this helpless, weak victim, out of control, in a world controlled by the religious leaders, and they got him. What I want to tell you this morning is, no, they didn't. Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. Nobody got him. Nobody was more powerful than him. Nobody was stronger than him. And that is why Luke is telling us this. I really, I was studying this text and I was thinking, why is Luke giving us all of these little narratives? Why is he giving us all of these tidbits? And I think this is why Luke wants his readers to know that, through that throughout this whole week in Jerusalem, that Jesus was in control. He wasn't outpowered. He wasn't weaker then. If we think Jesus died weak, then Jesus is a weak Savior. If we think Jesus died out of control, then he's an out-of-control Savior. If we think that Jesus just didn't see what was coming, didn't know the future, then he's a Savior that doesn't see what's coming and doesn't know the future. No, he was in control the entire time, every step of the way, and there's irony in what we're going to see and that is this, is that in even killing him, Jesus becomes the foundation on which we build our lives. There's an irony here. There's a turn of events. And we see this. I could summarize it in one simple sentence, and that is this. Since Jesus is in control, Jesus cannot be stopped. Since he's in control, Jesus cannot 
be stopped. He cannot be stopped, number one, through human wisdom. He cannot be stopped, number one, through human wisdom. My daughter and I, we went a couple weeks ago to a uh, uh, poly basketball game, which is her school. Went and saw the varsity boys play. They are currently ranked number 24 in the nation, which I'm like really excited about. My daughter doesn't care. She's more excited about the fact that Polly's like 31, uh, ranked number 31 as a STEM school in the nation. I'm like, Jaden, I'm like rolling my eyes at her. Like, get your focus off of education. Do you realize that you got like some future NBA players in your school? <laughs> so we went to the Polly game and they're playing Patterson. All right, if you graduate from Patterson, I'm just gonna apologize right now. Uh, they're playing Patterson, we're at the game, and so Patterson comes out, and they're doing their layups, they're warming up, and I'm like, all right, they look pretty decent, and then Polly comes out. I'm like, oh, I would hate to be Patterson right now. Like, literally every player on Polly's team is taller than every player on Patterson's team, all right? There was no match. It was, they were crushed from the beginning. It would have been a long four quarters, do you understand me? if you played for Patterson. As we get into this text, in the first eight verses, we see this. Jesus is no match for the Pharisees. They're going to plot. They're going to scheme. They're going to be sitting in the locker room. How can we get them? How, what, what are we going to do? And it's laughable. He stands head and shoulders above his opponents. So the they're, they're plotting right now. The, the religious leaders, he, he quotes uh, again, or he, he refers again to these three categories of people, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Verse 1, they come up to him, and they've, they've got a plan. They think they have figured it out. This is our first attempt at trying to trap Jesus, at engaging him in a debate, in an argument, and, and causing him to uh, expose himself or to sin in some fashion, to, to get him to stumble. And so there in verse 2, they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? That's a good question to ask because uh, if he says by God's authority, well, then they could claim that he's somehow claiming something he shouldn't claim, etc. You know, so it's like, let's, let's, let's ask him, by what authority are you going in and cleansing the temple? Like, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authorization to say, my house shall be a house of prayer as you're flipping tables? Well, they, listen, they are no match for Jesus. They, they try to trap him. Jesus, in turn, traps them. The fox becomes the hunted. Jesus answers a question with a question, and he says, well, let me ask you a question. Whose, whose authority was John operating? Because remember, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, sanctioning his ministry. That began his ministry. And they're like, oh, I didn't even see that one coming. <laughs> so verses 6 and 7, they're just like wrestling with, oh, well, if we say this, we lose. If we, if we say this, we lose. This is called a... It's a technical term. It's, it's a lose-lose. He's backed them into a corner. And so they don't answer. 
in verse 7? We don't know. And Jesus says, okay, in verse 8, Jesus says, if you're not going to answer, I'm not going to answer either. <laughs> but his silence speaks loudly, doesn't it? Meaning, like, who, who is this man? By whose, by whose authority does he speak? Does he teach? By whose authority does he act? Jesus' way is God's way. Luke's point in showing us this narrative is that the religious leaders are no match for Jesus. He stands head and shoulders above them. They try to debate him. They try to trap him. They try to fake him out, and they can't because Jesus, Jesus cannot be stopped by human wisdom. We all have tried to weasel our way out of something Jesus has said. We have all tried to prove that mm, he's wrong. And I'm right. He doesn't want what's best for me. I know what's best for me. Church, do you understand that Jesus cannot be stopped by human wisdom? Do you understand that when Jesus speaks, he speaks with all authority? He speaks with the authority of God over your money. He speaks with the authority of God over sex. He speaks with the authority of God over your marriage. He speaks with the authority of God over your singleness. He speaks with the authority of God as to how you conduct yourself on the job, at work, when nobody's looking. He speaks with the authority of God on what to say when, when you've got to say the truth. He speaks with the authority of God on how to love our neighbors and how to operate and how to handle ourselves in this fallen and broken world. Listen, the world comes with human wisdom and tries still 2,000 years later to trip him up. The world with human wisdom tries to show how this world can possibly exist without there being a God. Uh, no match for Jesus. This world tries to speak on gender and sexuality and reinvent some of these concepts. But the world is no match for the wisdom of God. Jesus' way is God's way. And He will not be mocked. His way will be shown to be right and true, whether that's out there or in here. We are all under the authority of God. That's why, church, we use the Bible when we preach. Like when, when, when I or anybody is preaching in this church, we've got to have our heads in this book. If we close this early on in the message and we're just talking with our own ideas, going on with human wisdom, going on with creative stories and applications. I pray that if that were to ever happen here, that someone would stand up in a members meeting and say, I think we should remove this preacher, teacher from our midst 
Because we've got to be in the Word of God. This is where He speaks to us. We can't have enough Scripture in this, in this church. Jesus cannot be stopped by human wisdom. He cannot be stopped as these men plot against him and think we're going to catch him. We're going we're to cause him to trip up. Listen, if you plot against me and get me into an argument, I will most likely sin. Right? Like, I don't care if I'm the innocent one and I'm being accused of something. If you get me arguing about something, I will probably have to apologize for something. It is one of the most annoying parts of being human. It's like, we could be the innocent party and now i got to apologize for the way I was just talking. And that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I, I, do, I apologize for calling you an idiot. <laughs> you know? Uh, for being so condescending. But if you would have listened to me, <laughs> I apologize for that now. You see what I'm saying? Like, look, just think of this. I want, I want you to see how beautiful Jesus is. It is so easy to cause us to sin. They can't get Jesus to sin. Like, have you ever just stopped to think about how amazing it is that Jesus was sinless? He never had to go back to the Pharisees and say, I, I will own up for this one thing that I said. You know, he never was being pulled in a, a certain direction by somebody in the crowd and slapped him. <laughs> like two of you caught that. <laughs> he, never, he never sinned. He cannot be stopped by human wisdom. I want you to just see how great Jesus is, how wonderful he is. How beautiful he is. They tried to trap him, but he was steady. They tried to trick him, but he was smarter. They tried to stump him, but he was stronger. They tried to stop him, but he was unstoppable. Now, Jesus knows what they're trying to do. And so he tells them a parable that is going to speak to what they're trying to do in verses 9 through 16. So the parable, briefly, it goes like this. A man plants a vineyard. And then he goes off to a far country. Now, time goes by, and grapes start to appear in the vineyard. And so he, the man sends a servant to go collect some of the grapes. Well, as he gets there, these tenants that are watching over the vineyard they decide in verse 10 that they don't want to give the servant any of this man's grapes to take back to the man. By the way, he doesn't even say collect all of the grapes. He just says some of it. He's generous. He's going to leave a good bit to the tenants. But instead, in verse 10, the tenants beat the servant and send him away empty-handed. Verse 11, the owner sends a second servant who receives the same treatment. He's beat and sent away empty-handed. Verse 13, a third servant is sent. He receives the same treatment. He is, he is beat and he is sent away empty-handed. Scholars say that any landowner in this time would have 
on that first instance, sent in a, uh, a, an army with severe punishment for these tenants. It would have been unheard of for an owner to wait and wait and, and send another servant and another servant and another servant. The point is this, is before we even get any further, let's just make a comment that God is a patient God. How many of you know that God is a patient God? I, I don't think you're with me. I said, how many of you know that God is a patient God? Let's talk about His patience. In our own city, over 300 murders last year, once again. In our own city, two out of three third graders cannot read. In our own city, only half the kids in our neighborhood will graduate from high school. In our own city, our, our uh, state's attorney received a voicemail going on about how African Americans ought to be exterminated. The poorest of the poor get poorer. We, in our public school system, schools in wealthy areas are stacked. Schools in poor areas have buildings that are deplorable. Overseas, a Chinese pastor was recently locked up for pastoring a church. Martin Luther King, who we remember this weekend, he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We look around at the world and we just ask God, how long? God, why don't you come back and do something about this injustice? Why don't you do something about the fact that people are taking something that is not theirs? Why don't you do something about the fact that people are, are, are living in inequality and, and some are given so much while others aren't given so little? The only, the only answer that we can possibly have for that is this doctrine of God's patience. That God is patient with sinners. But we gotta, we gotta make this personal. Because it's easy to talk about the problem out there and not recognize that the problem is in here. We can, we can talk about inequality out there. But how many of you are harboring favoritism in your own heart? If you don't deal with favoritism in your own life, how are we ever going to deal with injustice in the broader society? We could talk about taking what is not yours, and at the same time, you're looking at pornography and taking something that is not yours. My point is this. As long as there is injustice anywhere, it is a threat to justice everywhere. If there is injustice in your own heart, that is a threat to justice everywhere as long as we have brokenness, favoritism, ungodliness, hatred, lust in our heart, we will always have injustice in the world around us. My point is this. Some of you have walls in your life that are crumbling your house is about to fall on top of you because of the sin 
in your life. It's so easy to look elsewhere and to point at the problems outside of us. But my question is this, at what point is God going to let the roof fall down on your head? At what point is He just going to say, judgment has now come to your house because you have not dealt with these walls? Don't you understand, church, that God is a patient God? Don't you understand that He's patient with you? How many of you can celebrate the fact that God has been patient with you? If it was not for God's patience, where would I be? Where would I be? If it was not for this doctrine that God is patient with sinners. So we can pray, thy kingdom come, but let's understand what we're praying when we pray that prayer. The only thing that keeps God's judgment at bay is His patience. Throughout the Scriptures, God sent prophet who was rejected, beat, sent away. He sent a prophet who was rejected, beat, sent away. He sent another prophet who was rejected. All through the Scriptures, God's prophets were rejected. Finally, in the story, in verse 13, the owner says, this is what I'll do. I'll send my beloved Son. Now, beloved son, that's a, that's a direct quote from Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, which, by the way, the Pharisees just talked about with John. Hint, hint. He was sent into the world but the world knew him not. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. In verse 15, and they, they threw the beloved son out of the vineyard and killed him. They killed his son. Let's just pause right there. Can Jesus be stopped? Can human wisdom come against him, plot against him, cause him to sin, catch him, trip him, Absolutely not. Can Jesus be stopped? What about death? What if, what if these religious leaders are able to finally find some way to hang him on a Roman cross? I've got two points for my sermon. Jesus cannot be stopped through human wisdom. Number two, Jesus cannot be stopped through death. Even death of the beloved son cannot stop what this son is up to in the world. George Whitfield, he's a, a preacher from the 1730s. When he began preaching, he was in England. And he, Whitfield uh, detested the lukewarm church. And so he was preaching about lukewarm Christians. His whole denomination was lukewarm. So as a result, they kicked him out. No church opened their doors to Whitfield. So what did Whitfield do? He took it out to the fields. He began preaching in the fields, and his haters would come, and they would throw rotten fruit at him, and they would throw pieces of dead cats at him. But 25,000 people would gather to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a revival began to spread across the land. 
My point is simply this, human rejection, even to the point of death, cannot stop what God is going to do. Even death can't stop Jesus. As the parable closes in verse 16, the owners uh, are, uh, comes to destroy the tenants and to give the vineyard to somebody else. This is a clear word of warning of judgment coming against Jerusalem. In verse 16, the crowd responds to this parable and they're hearing the, the, the beloved son has been put to death and the crowd responds and says, surely not. This cannot be. I think the crowd is putting two and two together. I think they, they understand what Jesus is saying. It's pretty clear. And the crowd is saying, absolutely not. This will not happen. And then Jesus Jesus looks directly at them, verse 17. And he says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You just missed your moment to shout. We need to start shouting at the reading of God's word, amen? I, 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 you completely missed it. Let me read it again. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Cornerstone there, it's, it's, it's not just simply a word for a cornerstone in the building. It's, it's, in the original language, much more of a foundational stone. It's, he's saying the, the, the rejected stone has become the foundation on which you build your life. Meaning the, the one who is destroyed has uh, become a crucial piece in the restoration of human lives. Meaning the rejected one has become the exalted one. Meaning the thrown out one has become the most vital one of all. Like I said, God's prophets have always been rejected. As one preacher put it, Moses wandered in a maze around a, a mountain on the backside of the Midian desert. Noah preached, yet no one saw it rain. Elijah sat in a cave. Job suffered, sat in an ash pile. Jeremiah was weeping in a dungeon. D Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. Three he Hebrew boys were thrown into a fiery pit. Joseph was placed into Potiphar's prison. Jonah was swallowed by the belly of a fish. John was imprisoned. And Jesus, on a Friday yeah. at about 3 o'clock, yeah. cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the beloved son died. What verse 17 tells us is that Jesus cannot be stopped even by death. Don't you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sins? Yeah. He died to take your guilt. Yeah. He died to take God's wrath that you deserve. Yes. Oh, I love stories with irony. This is the greatest story of all. Yeah. 
what the Pharisees, what the religious leaders thought was finally winning was a loss for the kingdom of darkness. And the rejected stone is set up as the foundation on which all will build their lives. Why? It's because death could not stop Jesus. That was not the end. Three days later, early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, church, you suffer. Your sin sucks. Sometimes you wonder if you're going to make it. You've been hurt. You've been despised. You've been rejected. But don't you know that even death could not stop Jesus? He was raised. And if Jesus is raised, then that means death cannot even stop what He's doing in your life. If Jesus' mission could not be stopped on this earth, and if your salvation, listen, is part of His mission, then Jesus' work in your life cannot be stopped. The world is no match for you. Sin is no match for you. Guilt from your sin is no match for you. They don't have anything on you. Why? Because you have Christ. You have this foundation on which to build your lives. Oh, and they too will meet Jesus one day. Your accuser will meet Jesus. Verse 18, I'll close with this. Jesus turns the metaphor and he says, everybody who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And if that stone falls on you, you will be crushed. Jesus is, through doing so, asking us this question. Is he your foundation? Or is he a stumbling block on which you will be crushed? Everybody in this room will meet Jesus. Everybody in this world who's currently alive, who once lived, who will live, will encounter Jesus Christ. And the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is this, is Jesus a stumbling block? Or is he your foundation? A young couple bought a home. They moved in, and after about a week living in their home, a a crack developed on the wall. They immediately call the builder up, and they ask the builder, what about this crack? And the builder looks at it, and he says, no, it it should be fine. Uh, Just cover it with some plaster, and you should be good to go. A week later, uh, another crack develops on another wall, and they call the builder up, and the builder looks at it, and he says, yeah, it's similar to the other one, not a big deal, this is very common, go ahead and just put some plaster on it, give it some paint, you'll be okay. A week later, there's a third crack that develops. This time, they don't call the builder. They call in an architect. He comes and he takes a look at the walls, he inspects the whole house, And he comes to this poor young couple and he says, the problem is not in your walls. The problem is in the foundation. You need a new foundation. Some of you think the problem in your life 
is that you got some cracks developing in the walls of your house. Some of you think that your main problem in your life is your addiction. Your main problem in life is, is your lust. The main problem in life is other people and the way that you interact. The main problem is in your temper. You think the main problem is in these cracks, and if I can do something about these cracks, if I could get enough plaster, if I could maybe even just tear down these walls and, and figure out what walls to put up and listen to some speakers and some motivational speakers and read some books and learn how to reconstruct the walls in my life. I'm telling you this, church. Your house will still fall down. The problem isn't in the walls. The problem is in your foundation. The problem is not in your mistakes. It's in the foundation. The problem is not in your habits. It's in your foundation. If you're in Christ, good news, church. You've got a foundation. You've already got the foundation. If you're in Christ, good news. Just build your life on the foundation of Christ. He's already laid the foundation for you. He is the chief cornerstone. Build your life upon Jesus Christ. And if you build your life on this foundation, listen, church, His work cannot be stopped. If, if He is your foundation, it's a foundation that will never crumble. If, you, if He is your foundation, like any other foundation in this whole world, that will one day begin to fall apart. No, He is a foundation that is sure. He is a foundation that will last, that cannot be stopped. When you feel lost and you feel alone in this world, you got to know, Jesus said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. When it seems that you have no impact in this world, you got to know that Jesus said, I will build my church. When, when you're looking at your sin and you realize that like, my sin has ruined my life, you've got to know that Jesus said, I am making all things new. And when the devil tells you that you're not going to make it, you've got to know he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I wish I had a better sermon for you today, but I've got one simple point, and that is this. Jesus can't be stopped. He can't be stopped. He can't be stopped. Maybe next Sunday I'll have something more philosophical to offer, something a little more heady. But for today, I want you to know this one simple point, church. Jesus cannot be stopped. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. Jesus cannot be stopped. God, don't stop working in our lives. We need you. We can't do this on our own. We can't fix these walls on our own. We need this foundation of Christ. God, give us the strength to build our lives on Jesus, a foundation that will last. Keep us until that day when Jesus comes again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.